Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. The iCritical Care Podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Dr. Richard Savell. Dr. Savell is the Associate Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. He also is an Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care Podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email info at sccm.org. Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. Today is Sunday, February 18th, 2007. I'm Dr. Richard Savell. This podcast is being recorded during the Society of Critical Care Medicine's 36th Critical Care Congress here in Orlando, Florida. Our guest today is Dr. Howard Corwin, MD, FCCM. And Dr. Corwin is a professor of medicine and section chief of critical care medicine at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. And he will be discussing with us today the concept of anemia in the critically ill patient, an area with which he has significant expertise. Thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. I thought we'd begin by letting you talk a little bit about some of the problems of anemia in the critically ill patient. Obviously, this isn't the patient who's actively bleeding, but uh, as we all know, most critically ill patients, just by virtue of being there, become anemic. Well, uh, as as you said, most critically ill patients by day three are anemic. And what we found is that 95% of critically ill patients by day three in the intensive care unit have anemia. And uh, uh, the problem with this anemia is that it results in a large number of blood transfusions. And on average, patients in the intensive care unit will receive uh, close to five units of uh, transfused cells while in the ICU. And do you want to talk a little bit about some of the pathophysiology behind that in terms of it isn't just that they're losing blood from from the blood draws? Clearly, phlebotomy is part of it, and probably about a third of the anemia is explained just by phlebotomy. But in addition to that, uh, critically ill patients are not normal in terms of their hematologic status. Uh, They have iron studies uh, that are consistent with uh, anemia of chronic disease, meaning they have uh, low iron, low TIBC levels, high ferritin levels, and they have erythropoietin levels that are relatively deficient. And uh, in addition to that, uh, even those patients that have erythropoietin levels that may be a little higher, uh, their bone marrow won't respond normally to that. So uh, patients in the ICU really look like they have anemia of chronic disease. So in a sense, they have an acute anemia of chronic disease. One of the landmark studies uh, in this field, obviously, is the A-Bear study from 1999 in the New England Journal of Medicine, showing that allowing uh, critically ill patients for their hemoglobin to fall to seven or less with a target of seven to nine before transfusion is safe and in some patients safer than transfusion. This has obviously been at a national level somewhat challenging to implement, and I thought if you could spend a few minutes talking about that study, any updates on it, and why you think that has been such a challenge and perhaps some of the ways of dealing with those challenges. Well, if you back up a a bit, we've been transfusing blood for 100 years now, and there's really very little data that 
other than in patients who are acutely bleeding, it does anything. You know, it's always had face validity that that uh, if you're anemic, that transfusing patients would be a good thing, but there's really no d- data supporting that. Now, that was fine when there were no risks associated with blood transfusion, and it turns out now we're appreciating that there are more and more risks that than generally appreciated in terms of red cell transfusion. So it may not be a, a case of may help, won't hurt, but there's really not a lot of data showing that red cells do what we think they're going to do in terms of, of improving oxygen delivery to tissues. And there's uh, data suggesting that, that the risks are much higher than we thought. Now, what the BEAR study was, uh, it, uh, it, in that study, and, and this is the study that was done by the Canadians uh, Critical Care Trials Group, uh, what they did is they compared a liberal transfusion strategy. And in, by that, they transfused patients at a transfusion threshold of 10 and tried to maintain patients with a hemoglobin level between 10 and 12. And what they did was they compared that to a restrictive strategy where patients were transfused at a trigger of 7 and maintained at a hemoglobin range between between uh, 7 and 9. Now, in order to get into this study, you had to have a hemoglobin of 9. So essentially, the liberal group was a 100% transfusion group. So Basically, they they compared a more restrictive st- strategy to really a 100% transfusion strategy. And what they found uh, with all measures that they looked at, patients in the restricted group did as well, if not better, than patients in the liberal group. And in fact, in those patients who were younger, and that's younger by, by um, uh, defined as age less than 55, and patients that were less severely ill, and that was defined as an Apache score less than 20, uh, not only was a liberal strategy not more effective than a restricted strategy, but patients who, who received more transfusions actually did significantly worse. So there was a, an increased uh, mortality in patients who received more blood. So the takeaway message of, uh, of the study is that uh, compared to a liberal strategy, a more restrictive strategy is at least as good and in some patients superior to a more liberal transfusion strategy. And I know uh, two of the uh, theoretical or, or pathophysiologic mechanisms behind that, if you'd like to comment, are the immunosuppressiveness of blood itself and the issue of old blood. I know those are two important areas. Well, why why the patients did worse with more transfusions is is, is uh, not clear. It's just speculative. But two plausible explanations are, are first, uh, that there are some immunomodulating effect of, of uh, white cells that are uh, that that get transfused in the, with the red cells, and there's a there's a fairly substantial literature documenting the fact that that red cell transfusions can cause uh, changes in the immune system that that last days, weeks, months, and years after a single blood transfusion. Uh, there's also uh, a fair bit of data suggesting that red cell transfusions may be associated with uh, an in- increased risk of, of ICU infections and postoperative infections. Um, now, there, uh, there's been interest uh, with, in leukoreduction uh, in terms of reducing this, this effect, and leukoreduction is standard of care in Europe and in Canada, and uh, currently it's debated in the United States, but there is some, some uh, thought that if you leukoreduce cells, you will remove the immunomodulating effect of red cell transfusions. That's still 
uh, somewhat controversial. There, there are people who believe that that leak reduction uh, may not have as great an effect as those who are advocating it uh, believe. Uh, what is clear is that lucre reduction doesn't hurt anything, and the question is, is whether it's worth the cost to institute universal lucre reduction. Now, with respect to the age of cells, um, there's also data accumulating that uh, cells that are older, and, and how you define older is variable, but, but generally if cells that are older than two weeks uh, may have a negative impact on, on patients. And there's a number of storage lesions that are associated with red cell transfusions. And uh, the, the thought is that uh, because of these storage lesions, you can get uh, uh, morbidity associated with that, and that may be responsible to some of the negative effects that, that you see with red cell transfusions. But the, uh, but the two important points that you're emphasizing, just for the listeners to restate it, is A, transfusion may not be as helpful as one might think, and B, there's some signal that it may be harmful in certain populations. That's sort of the, the big picture when an intensivist is trying to work with a primary team that may not be up on all of the critical care literature with this. Well, it's clear that if the intent of transfusing is to improve oxygen delivery and oxygen utilization at the tissue level, there's not a lot of data suggesting that transfusing patients uh, achieves that in, in most of the clinical settings in which it's done. Uh, there's little data to support uh, things like uh, it improves the outcome in sepsis. There's little data suggesting that it will have patients weaned from mechanical ventilation more quickly. So there's very little data uh, supporting many of the reasons that we commonly transfuse patients. One of the issues that comes up in my life is um, a cardiologist may say, well, this patient has a history of coronary artery disease, and I was wondering if you could comment on the patient with coronary artery disease versus a patient with an acute coronary syndrome and the role of transfusion there. I know there's some important literature there. Well, the one patient population where there may be some role of, in red, of red cell transfusion is in those patients who have acute cardiac ischemia. Uh, there's two uh, observational studies bearing on this question. The first is a study by Wu, which was a which was a look at a large Medicare database of 75,000 patients who were greater than 65 years of age and who uh, had an acute MI. And what Wu and colleagues found was that those patients who had admission hemoglobins less than 33 and who were transfused had better outcomes. Now, there are many methodologic problems with this study. Uh, there was a, a more recent study by Rao uh, in, where they took data from several large uh, uh, studies looking at patients with acute coronary syndromes and looking at those patients who were transfused. And what they found was that patients who were transfused at hematocrits greater than 25 had worse clinical outcomes. So it is probably true that patients who have acute cardiac syndromes require a hemoglobin level greater than 7. It's probably less than 10, but where in between it is is unclear. The WU data would suggest that... that uh, uh, transfusing at higher hemoglobins are beneficial. The raw data would, su would suggest that what that whatever that number is where it's beneficial, it's probably lower than 33 and probably closer to a hematocrit of 25. 
uh, clearly this is an area where a randomized controlled trial uh, would, is necessary to really answer that question. So the uh, takeaway message is that patients with acute cardiac syndromes, and that's different than patients who have just a history of underlying cardiac disease. Patients with an under, a history of underlying cardiac disease are like everybody else in the ICU. They don't necessarily need higher hemoglobin levels, but in patients who are acutely ischemic, they probably need a, a hemoglobin level that is higher than seven, but what that number is is less clear, and it is probably less than the traditional 10. One of the uh, other areas that I wanted to talk with you about is this issue of patients because of implementation of evidence-based guidelines and who may not be transfused um, may be leaving the ICU anemic, and the question is uh, there's some uh, signal that that n may not necessarily be great and that the patients are just delaying and getting their transfusions later. And I was wondering if you could comment, maybe help the average intensivist with this concept of, or problem. Well, there's not a lot of data about what happens to patients when they leave the ICU. You know, we've looked at uh, uh, some of our data and, and uh, probably somewhere between 10 and 15% of patients who leave the ICU receive a red cell transfusion after they leave the ICU. And probably about two-thirds of those patients, that's the only transfusions they, they receive. Uh, whether or not patients do better or worse uh, with or without transfusions after they leave the ICU is... is uh, not a is, lot of data is, behind that As far as I know, there's no data okay. in terms of what happens to those patients. But... Uh, whether they would do better with higher hemoglobin levels or whether they do just fine. There's just no data. But clearly patients will be transfused, and part of that is that they, they change physicians. So whatever you do in the ICU, if you don't follow those patients outside of the ICU, it becomes somebody else's responsibility and somebody else's bias that but will from, drive But the from theory, asking you then, there would be, if so if I were in a hospital where there were hospitalist intensivists all working as one group and you were managing that same patient on the floor and there was no acute bleeding, there's no reason to transfuse other than to, uh, than to continue to giving iron and trying to build up their stores, right? I well, mean, there, if anything, there's less data in patients okay. who leave the ICU than, than there is in patients who are in the, at least in the ICU, patients who are in the ICU, we at least have some data in terms of what they'll, what they'll tolerate. Now, there is currently a NIH-funded study looking at functional outcomes in patients with, uh, with uh, orthopedic surgery, I believe. But there is a study that is looking at long-term functional outcomes with hemoglobin level, and uh, when that becomes available, that will provide some data. But there's really not uh, um, a good deal of data out there in terms of what happens uh, in patients more chronically who are anemic. Um, I think that segues nicely into our last section, which is perhaps if you could share with the listeners some of your uh, recommended ways of helping to decrease uh, phlebotomy at the bedside, perhaps to commenting on things like bedside testing or pediatric tubes or some of these closed systems. Maybe share with us what you've seen that's been helpful to you and things like yeah. that. Well, it's clear that if you use, uh, if you phlebotomize less, patients will become less anemic and will... Uh, receive less red cell transfusion, then that's that's been shown multiple times. It's also clear that if one uses pediatric tubes, uh, you will reduce phlebotomy and uh, raise hemoglobin levels or have higher hemoglobin levels and avoid red cell transfusion. 
and then finally, it is clear if you order less tests, you will use lose less blood and have less anemia. The problem is all those things are much more difficult than it would appear. It, it is actually challenging to institute a process of less testing. Uh, it's equally challenging to institute a policy of uh, pediatric tubes. And, you know, they're, they're, they are all doable things. They're just, they re just require some effort to do that. But if you, if you reduce phlebotomy, if you reduce blood testing, you will clearly have less anemia and less blood transfusion. We will hopefully have a future podcast with Dr. Corwin about EPO in the ICU, so stay tuned for that. Uh, were there any final comments that you wanted to make about anemia in the critically ill patient as part of today's discussion? Well, I think it's still a very active area uh, in terms of, of what we do. You know, it's for years, uh, the, what's governed blood transfusion is uh, face validity, and it made sense, but now it's clear that that there's really not a lot of data driving the those decisions and it's always been the default position has always been when in doubt give blood but given the increased morbidity associated with transfusions that we're beginning to appreciate the default probably should be uh, you know when in doubt do no harm and uh, I think with blood transfusion unless there's a clear indication uh, what is clear just transfusing to make the number higher may actually, well, may not help and may actually harm patients. I was just reading an article Dr. Buckman wrote um, where he was discussing the interplay between the surgeon and the intensivist where, where the quotation was, well, that's fine for the literature, but give my unit, give my patient two units of blood kind of issue. Where yeah, that, that's, of clearly the, you know, that's clearly what drives, you know, it's always made sense that if you're anemic, blood must be good, and that's driven transfusion practice for 50 years. But uh, it was fine when there were, was little risk attached to, to blood transfusion, but now that we're becoming aware that the risks are probably greater than we've previously appreciated, uh, and the data is accumulating that you may not be helping patients and you may actually be harming patients. Today's podcast, we've had the opportunity to speak with Dr. Howard Corwin, MDFCCM, who is the Section Chief of Critical Care Medicine at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center, and we've been speaking about anemia and the critically ill patient. Thank you so much, Dr. Corwin, for joining us today. Thank you. This concludes our podcast for Sunday, February 18th, 2007. If you have comments, questions, or ideas for future podcasts, please call the Society of Critical Care Medicine's audio feedback line at one 847-493-6498 to share your thoughts. For the iCritical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Savell. Gain a multi-professional practice-enhancing perspective on cornerstone interventions and current controversies in treating anemia in the critically ill and injured patient during the second installment of SCCM's Clinical Focus Series, Anemia in the Critically Ill and Injured Patient, to be held April 12th through the 13th, 2007 in San Antonio, Texas, USA. Expert intensive care providers from multiple disciplines and specialties will stimulate thought-provoking discussions through compelling examinations of anemia and transfusion practice, red blood cell transfusion indications and associated risks, and transfusion reduction and alternatives. Register today by visiting www.sccm.org or calling one 847 827 6888.